Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Hello and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today we present an interview of Bertrand Bickersteth by Mahmoud Ababneh. My name is Mark Herman Lynch and I am a research assistant for the Tea House Project of the University of Calgary. In this interview, Bertrand Bickersteth discusses his fraught relationship with the prairies, sharing both his personal experiences and his research into black histories, which have been slash are largely neglected in educational institutions. He and Mahmoud discuss the mechanics of writing, black history, historied soil, land and identity, and touch on important historical figures such as Henry Bibb, Sylvester Long, and John Ware. Bertrand discusses how his book, The Response of Weeds, A Misplacement of Black Poetry on the Prairies, complicates majoritarian views that try and dictate who belongs and who doesn't, which histories matter and which don't. Mahmoud Abobne is pursuing a PhD in English literature at the University of Calgary on Treaty 7 territory. His research centers around trans-Indigenous and post-colonial literatures, decolonization, and settler colonialism. Mahmoud is currently teaching at Bow Valley College. His work has appeared in the Journal of Holy Land and Palestine Studies and Ariel. Bertrand Bickersteth is an educator who also writes poetry and plays. His collection of poetry, The Sponsor of Weeds, won multiple awards and, in 2020, was named a Best Book of Poetry by CBC. He lives in Calgary, teaches at Olds College, and writes about Black identity on the prairies. This interview is insightful and engaging, and Bertrand is overall just a joy to listen to. I hope you enjoy. Hello, Bertrand, and thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much, Mahmoud. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, how are you? Uh, I'm actually very, very tired. I'm super busy. It seems like everything is happening right now. And I believe that some of it is kind of sort of pandemic related, that we just have all these extra concerns that we have to deal with. And also the things that used to be normal now are a little bit more difficult. But we're also nearing that time of the year where the marking is very heavy and the responsibilities are all piling up. So to be honest, I'm looking forward to May because then <laughs> I can breathe easy again. Just got to put my head down and hope for May to come sooner rather than later. <laughs> but I'm not complaining. <laughs> <laughs> what are you teaching this semester? So I teach at Olds College, and that's an agricultural college, believe it or not. And so I teach communications there. So that's teaching the students about writing and presenting and that sort of thing. 
So all my classes are writing classes, essentially. Uh, so yeah, I'm reading lots of reports and essays that the students mean well, but many of them are poorly written, or shall we say they're still learning how to write them. <laughs> I want to say we have so much in common now because I am buried with piles and piles of midterm papers to grade, and I teach at Red Deer College, and I teach writing, technical writing. <laughs> we have so much in common, that's exactly right, yeah. It's so, I can see a couple of um, avenues for us to talk about here. But one thing I find very interesting, Mahmoud, is teaching technical writing, but having an interest and a love in poetry and literature and things like that. And why I'm bringing this up is because there were times in which, when I'm writing, in which I feel like it's all in the flow, it's all emotion, it's all instinct, and it's all just, it comes out wonderfully. But then there are other times in which I can't reach that flow. And what I need to do is to just fall back on very clear and reliable rules. And it does sort of feel like, even though it's not technical writing, it feels like a kind of reliance on a technical approach. And so a lot of the times I think to myself, well, you shouldn't like turn your nose on technical writing because you basically do a version of it yourself. So I'm just curious how you feel about that relationship between the technical writing that you teach and the literary and the poetry that you love. Okay, that's a really good question that I wanted to ask you. But since you <laughs> asked me... <laughs> Sorry. Here, here it is. When I teach, like when you want to teach, for example, how to write an essay, let's think of that equation. Yeah. You, us as literary critics, or we study literature, or we did that for all of our lives. So we would, we have this kind of tendency to teach literature. But when you have students who are not English students, what are you supposed to do with that? And they are, as you said, if you have a, like, a, you said you are in an agricultural or a, yes. like a college that teaches agriculture. And I am in a college that teaches lots of uh, trades. Right. So why would someone be a student read and learn about literature while they are have nothing to do with English or what we like the canon the way we teach exactly. English why would somebody care about it so I'm struggling not to do that not to teach literature or I mean by literature I mean what I think is good literature I I mean not the canonical literature I don't teach the canon I don't teach right. European literature I even when I teach literature I try to focus on BIPOC authors yeah. And I need to introduce lots of non, what they call it, nonfiction, basically yeah. articles about, for example, anorexia or articles about right. smoking or addiction. So I am struggling not to be a literary teacher in a classroom. How about you? Uh, yeah, great question. <laughs> Wish I thought of it myself. <laughs> um, yes, I struggle. Now, I've been doing this for a long time. I don't know how long you've had to how long you found yourself in this circumstance. But I have learned a few tricks. And when I first started teaching at this college, I assumed that my literary background would be able to carry me forward. And I learned very quickly that it can't. You know, there are elements to it that definitely can, right? So there's some things that we have to teach students, like just being able to read and analyze the text. Okay, so you can bring some of that in when you are teaching them about uh, researching sources or things like that. And you say, you know, you can't just read passively. You've got to look carefully. But even that, I have to say, my stu students very much struggle with. They struggle with analysis, things that we find uh, basic, right? 
So I learned very quickly that while some things from my literary background can work, a lot of it can't work. And I really did have to turn my thinking to those mechanics of writing. And those, those mechanics are actually visible in literature too, but we just see it in a different way entirely. And so rather than, you know, asking them to read a text and to try to discover meaning and then support and argue that meaning to me, I would just have them read a text and summarize it for me. Can you put it in fewer words? And that kind of exercise was difficult for me because I felt like, you know, summarizing is just something you do to do something else, right? You don't just do that's not the end unto itself. But actually, I've come to see that there is a value in just isolating certain very specific skills. And the students that I have, and I, it sounds like we have students that are very similar, they are very hands-on. They just want to do the thing, right? They don't want to sit and think about it and contemplate different possibilities and things like that, right? So if you have nursing students, they just want to know, how do I, what do I need to do to become a nurse, basically? They, right? they don't want to read this text and then, you know, discuss it in class and that sort of thing. So I did come to realize that there is some value in just isolating certain techniques, certain mechanics. So summarizing, for example, comparing, for example, because these are things that you can link to what they do in the world. And then also I have been able to bring the world into it as well. And I know this is very controversial these days, but you, know, you can talk about the immense polarities that we have in, in the world because they're living those things now, right? And so you can actually encourage them to use some of these skills to think a little bit better about the lives that they live. So I'll give you a very quick example of this. So in, when I was an undergrad, I had a great experience with this one prof who was Mr. Old Dead White Man, romantic poetry guy. <laughs> but in one class, and I hardly remember anything we read in that class, by the way, but this one class I do remember because I forget who it was that he had us read. I forget who it was, but he said, okay, read this thing. And remember we read him last week, but I want you to read this other thing. And you'll see it's totally different from what he said last, what we read last week. And I was thinking to myself, yeah, it's like the complete opposite. What, this guy's a fool. What is this all about? And the prof said, listen, when he first wrote this, he was 20. Now he's 45 when he wrote this and he changed his mind. So class, I want you to know, it's okay to change your mind. And this is the huge lesson that I have taken from this class from, you know, when I was in my early 20s to today, because we did, and well, even more now, so we live in a society in which you're supposed to simply have your ideas fully formed, you're fully formed, and whatever you say goes and you stand by it. And if you change your mind, it's seen as bad. It's seen as waffling as not having a backbone or something like that. And so what I try to do is when I bring these things into the classroom and I say, okay, listen, we've got a polarized society and I'm, I'm showing you a technique for how to pay attention to what is an accurate source. Now I want you to think about questioning yourself and even going back to your community and questioning members of your community whom you have always held in high esteem and who you've maybe always listened to and always felt like they are right. And I'm not telling you to go back to them personally and say they're wrong. I'm telling you to, in your mind, question, ask the question, maybe, does a mind change need to take place here? Does somebody need to rethink something? 
And that's all we can ask them to do, essentially, right, is to take our learning and then go back out in the world and maybe they'll do it, maybe they won't, but we ask them to. And so, yeah, I have Mahmoud. I found it very useful to focus on very specific um, techniques or approaches and to encourage the students in that way. And yeah, we try to bring in a little bit of lit whenever we can, right? A little bit of radical thinking whenever we can. One of the things that I always think about is I, when I was an, an undergrad student, I always thought it's really, it's bothering me. It, it bothered me a lot when we separate the classroom from what's happening outside. I thought that's mm -hmm. kind of kind of violence. I think Karina Vernon said that in, in one interview that it's that's violence. Like you see the world is burning outside and you go to the classroom and you teach, you are studying this canonical text about all the school English people doing whatever they are doing. You're like, like, why aren't we talking about what's happening right now? So I do whatever I can do to make sure that we are engaged with what's happening outside the, cl the classroom. Otherwise, it's going to turn out to be a bubble that is really boring for everyone because they come from outside. They have connections. They have community. So they need to feel that the classroom is working on that. And I don't know if you agree with me. And I think Alberta's uh, government and new curricula curriculum would help us in this critical thinking. What do you think of that? <laughs> <laughs> so I entirely agree with you and possibly Karina's point as well that it is a kind of there is a kind of moral lacking in having students sit in a classroom and purport to imbue them with intellectual capacities that are completely divorced from the lives they live and the world that they live in that is a definite lacking, for sure. And, you know, when you said the violence, I was thinking um, Albert Memmi, I think he might actually make a ref reference to that as well, but I can't clearly remember that there is a kind of violence. And it's the violence of silence is what it is. And uh, it's the easiest kind of violence to perpetrate, in fact. So, yes, I'm 100% with you. I experienced that as well when I was an undergrad. But unlike you, I didn't recognize that that's what I was experiencing. So most of my life, because I was raised here, I absorbed all of those Canadian values and those Canadian sensibilities about how great we are and we're not racist and everything's fantastic. But my experiences would always contradict that. So when I was young, I had no tools for reconciling the contradiction. All that pr it produced in me was confusion, essentially. So when I was sitting in class, hearing about how great William Wordsworth is and, you know, wandering <laughs> lonely as a cloud is like the best thing you can do in poetry. Yeah, I believed that, but I had a feeling that this was not enough. Like it was not satisfying for me, but I didn't know why. When I went to grad school in the UK, I went to the School of Oriental and African Studies. And then it all became very clear to me what I had been missing before and why I felt uneasy about what I was learning. It is a kind of violence. It's a violence of silence, and it's very, very troubling. Speaking of silence, and the, I want to you to tell me about your, because you are described as scholar of Black Alberta, which is, I love the term, and you <laughs> write about Black history in Western Canada. Yes. Where does this start, and how did you react to your research findings about Black presence on the, in the prairies? Great question. Yeah. So for me, because I grew up here and learned nothing about any Black history, 
uh, one of the other things that I absorbed from Canadians was, I guess I don't belong here, right? I guess they're right. And as you well know, if you're not white in this country, white people seem to think that it's a perfectly natural just to ask you where you're from, always, regardless, yeah? You can be living in this country for 25, 30 years, 10 years, whatever, or let's say you've only been here for one year or five years, but now you're here and this is, you feel like this is where you're from. So you're never allowed to be Canadian regardless, yeah? And immigrants are, you know, we're not Canadian Canadians. We're just, we're immigrant Canadians, yeah? So we don't quite fit in. We don't quite belong. So because I had never received any education in Black history, and I had received all these other histories, I presumed them to be right. I presumed that I didn't have a place here. Now, I remember one day, I was about 13 years old, and I was at the bus stop with my mom. I can't remember why we were taking the bus, but uh, there was an old lady at the bus stop, and she approached my mom, and she asked, as they all do, oh, where are you from? And that's how she started the conversation, like they like to. And my mother, who is not a person to tell lies at all, <laughs> said, oh, I'm from here, right? And I was shocked to hear this come out of her mouth. So was the old lady, in fact. And she said, no, 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 I mean, before here. And my mom said, no, no, well, I'm here, from here. Well, we live in Calgary, well, we lived in Edmonton before. That's where we were. She's like, no, 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 I mean, before that, right? And my mom says, well, here, here, that's it. And she said, are you, I'm talking about where were you born and raised? And my mom says, I was born and raised here. <laughs> now, to me, I'm sitting there just like beside myself because as I told you, my mom does not lie. She's actually a very honest person. And she's also a person who upholds morals too. And so I'm shocked to hear her absolutely blatantly lying to this woman. And although, you know, back then her accent was, she doesn't really have very much of an Af African accent. She has a mild one. Okay. So you could detect something. She, she clearly doesn't sound like she's from quote unquote here. So the lady just finally gave up right? She finally gave up. <laughs> and we got on the bus and that was that. And later, my mom was speaking to me and she said, well, you know, why shouldn't I have told her here? They've got Black people who were born and raised here for generations, and they've never even heard about them. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. I've never heard about them either, right? And so I felt as though my mom was kind of giving me a little education in your right to belong. Because as I said, she's not a person who tells lies, but she was making a stand. And I see now that it was a moral stand that she was uh, making. And since then, I kept that in the back of my mind. Oh, there are Black people born and raised here that no one's ever heard of. And I asked her about it many years after that. I'm like, well, who are these people actually? And she said, well, you know, I worked with them. There's this family and there's that people and there's this and they've just been here, right? And so once she said that, I started to go and look up things. I started to go and I do my own research. And slowly you find things. So right away you find Cheryl Fogo, for example, right away, you find that. Okay? And for your listeners who are not familiar with her, Cheryl Fogo is the, the center of Black Albertan and Black Prairie writing. She is a, a multi-genre, multi-talented writer, director, filmmaker, et cetera, et cetera. But she's also descended from these Black pioneers who came from the South, that her family in particular is from uh, Oklahoma, mother side of her family. And she is, forms a part of that community. And so she writes about that. That that's forms a part of her, her subject matter. 
So in discovering her, it opened up the doors to learning about the history of Black Alberta. And this is still when I'm quite, well, I say quite young. I was in my 20s at this point. So here is, uh, at this point, I am finishing my undergrad, not quite satisfied with what I got. And so like so many people of color, we go out and educate ourselves basically. And so I did, I went out and I found these things. Now, later on when I was in grad school and was a proper researcher, I was able to really target those skills towards researching black literature. And to answer your question about how did I feel when I was you know, discovering these things, I had an ambivalent feeling. Yeah, I felt ambivalence. On the one hand, when I discover things like black fur traders who have never been discussed before, I feel elated, right? I feel overjoyed because this confirms that yes, there is definitely a black history that can be stretched back centuries, which is great, right? At the same time, I feel betrayed and angry because why is it left to a few people who are not official educators to go and find these things and bring them out into the world. Why didn't Canada give me these things? These things happened in Canada. They're part of Canadian history. They should have been part of my education. They should have been part of everyone's education. So I felt, I, I feel both of those things. And then on top of that, Mahmoud, I also, a lot of the time that I would be uncovering some of these, these findings, Part of the story would be the story of racism as well in uh, Alberta and in Western Canada. And that was painful to uncover because not only did it demonstrate that we have a Black history that's centuries long, but we have a history of racism towards Black people specifically, but obviously general racism that is also centuries long. And sometimes I would be researching a particular figure that would go through something that I would recognize in contemporary society. And I would see, ah, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. And so for me, it was the mixture of those emotions. It was ambivalence for sure. Elation to find these things, but also a sense of betrayal and a sense of sadness as well. I think I answered your question. You, you did well. And thank you so much for that detail. And I am... Just want to remind our listeners that all the names and the titles that we are mentioned, they will be linked in the show notes. So if you guys want to know more about the authors or the text that we are talking about, you will find with the timestamp for every book or name that we mentioned, they will be linked below. So you need just scroll down and you'll find all the info that you want. My observation about your mom's story is, had the other woman who asked your mom, where are you from? And I think that is our job as because we teach at universities, so basically we teach teachers when they go to the classroom. Had yeah. this mom or that woman that talked to your mom been exposed to John Ware or the early settlers who came from Oklahoma to know they actually started settlements here and they were, uh, they were here just maybe before in certain places before anyone else. I mean, it's indigenous land, of course, but they yeah. settled that land. Had she been exposed in her early childhood or in school days to these valuable information, which, which is the responsibility of the government to educate people and train people to do that work. Would she ask your mom the same question? That's an excellent question. And my instinct says that, yes, she would have. 
And the, the reason why I say that, and that I don't mean to undermine the value of research that I see, because I see it's enormously valuable and it's what I do. And I do it because I want to prevent people from putting other people through that kind of grilling that my mom received. But I fear that it would not have an impact. And here's where the cynical part of me comes in. Because there seems to be a resistance to thinking of Blackness as being able to occupy belonging on North American soil. So I had a great conversation with, she was a, uh, I'm just trying to think what her title was. She came in to do a workshop on Indigenous awareness, essentially. And uh, we were talking about indigeneity. And she said that, yeah, she loves Indigenous people all over the world. And that people in North America forget that Africans are Indigenous too, that they're just Indigenous to Africa, right? And they're Indigenous people that were brought over here. And that really resonated with me, right? That resonated that there is a sense of indigeneity that I can connect with, even though I live on this continent here. But it is white people who have usurped that, right? They've taken that and they've claimed it. And the fallout of that claiming is to do their best to other everyone else. And so I think even though they know, for example, that there is a history of indigenous people who've been here for thousands of years, even though they know that they were not the first people to come here, even though they may hear that there is such a thing as black history, I fear that they will still resist embracing or at least recognizing a sense of belonging that is associated with blackness on this continent. And I'm sorry to say that, but I fear that that is the case. I, I, am, I am interested to think about how or the impact of education. I'm talking about post-secondary education because I have no experience teaching in schools. I'm talking about post-secondary education, the impact of what we do as anti-racist educators and teachers and professors how or what we are doing in the classroom, does that have an impact on the daily life, the daily lives of people, the way that they react to the, uh, or what they think of as the other or the not from here? Or do we, can we do something about that? Do we have an impact or you feel like there's not much can be, uh, can be done because the, the other wave, which is the racist populist wave, is way stronger than us? So part of my response uh, to your previous question was that I sound like I'm contradicting myself because I feel as though it is my duty to bring these things out into the open to the public precisely for the reasons that you've talked about, to impact people's lives, to impact their understanding of their everyday lives, connecting them to a fuller vision of history so that they can do those things. So when you asked me that question about what we can do in post-secondary to you know, produce educators, I feel that it is our responsibility to see it as an endeavor in creating impactful experiences for them. I don't know what will happen at the end, at the other end of the tunnel. I don't know because they go out into the world and it's like having children, right? They go out and you hope that you've planted the right seeds and that they're going to go and do the right thing but they don't always do the right thing. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So I have a colleague who teaches in the United States and her job is to literally educate uh, educators and teaching teachers who predominantly in the United States, if you're teaching in public schools, you are going to be mainly teaching students of color. But 
the vast majority of teachers in the US are white. And so she feels a responsibility to make sure that they understand all of these things so that they can go out into the world and do good teaching. She receives a lot of resistance in the classroom even while she's teaching. So sometimes what we teach in class lands, sometimes it works, and sometimes we get resistance. But who's to say what happens afterwards? You know, once they've graduated and moved out into the world, the hope is they're going to be able to put these pieces of the puzzle together and see what it is that we were teaching them and then be able to apply it and do the right thing. So yes, I feel it is our responsibility. We should be trying to create impactful experiences so that they can encounter the world as it is and not how we've ideally been taught it, quote unquote is. And hopefully then there won't be somebody going through a classroom understanding Canada to have nothing but European history and will go out into the world uh, embracing the diversity that, it, that there actually is, that is natural to Canada. And even more so, and maybe this is pushing it one step too far, but being prepared to also question those discourses, those narratives that marginalize and that push aside the fullness of those stories that I'm talking about. You talked about all of that in your, in your recent book, The Response of Weeds. Yes. And reading this book is like reading a play where after flipping each page, the curtain comes down and a new scene starts because Lovely. there's an introduction of so many historical figures also like that. When you read a play at the beginning, there's the introduction of the characters. But here we are talking about figures that are not, they are not fictional, they were in history. And some of them, all of them, we should focus on those people and read them and they should be part of our curriculum. And, but before, before I get deep into the, the, the book, I just want to think of the title. I was thinking of the title and there is the title is The Response of Weeds, right? And then the subtitle, A Misplacement of Black Poetry on the Prairies. So how the weeds, and the misplacements work together. And usually because when, you, when we say weeds, usually we are talking about things that it grows and it's unwanted and it grows in random places in everywhere maybe also. And why it's a misplacement of black poetry on the prairies? Yeah, so um, great question. And nobody has ever made the connection between the misplacement and the weeds for me, that's, uh, that's great. So for me, the weeds came from my experiences teaching at this agricultural college. And interestingly, what happened was um, occasionally we have to do these field schools and go out into the, into the field and the students do things. And, you know, I just sort of watch because all I, all I can do is afterwards teach them how to write about what they did. But I have picked up a lot of very interesting ideas being out in nature. And one of the things that I learned that was very, very, became very clear to me um, is that plants are just plants. Some of them though, we call weeds because we don't like them. Others, we nurture because they're hard to grow and we put place a huge value on them and we say they're valuable plants. So I thought that weeds are actually the plants that thrive. And sometimes, in fact, often what happens is they came from somewhere else and they had an advantage over the native plants because they were from somewhere else. 
And I liked the idea of this metaphor of people who come from somewhere else, immigrants who come from somewhere else, who are able to take root in this, these new lands here and to make something of themselves and to do things here. And I liked that metaphor so much because obviously immigrants is, as we said before, it's considered not quite Canadian, not, not good enough. So the idea of people coming from somewhere else and doing well really appealed to me. It also was connected to the sense of belonging that I always never quite felt here. And that's where the misplacement comes in. So as you said, weeds are unwanted plants. Right? And so when we find them, we try to get rid of them, right? So they're in the wrong place. I felt that because blackness and literary studies and intellect in general are not associated, have not regularly or historically been associated, that for me to produce a book of poems that are trying to engage, yes, history, but also literature as well, these, these things that we considered high-minded and European, that this could be seen as a kind of misplacement, that I could be seen as a weed in the field of literature. And I loved that idea. I loved the idea of being a weed in the canonical field of literature because weeds can thrive and they can do well. And so for me, that is why I would use the weeds term and why I used misplacement. But I also wanna give a nod to response because I'm not coming at this from a general immigrant perspective, but it's my personal perspective, my personal experience. And that is that of coming from an African family and then finding yourself black in Canada. And one of the traditions that is common to uh, African-American and I should say black people in North America in general is the tradition of call and response. And that, that has become something that we can recognize as uh, literary, it's, it's a device. And so for me, the response is not simply an answer. It is actually a response. It's also connected to the history of blackness and the prairies, which is that Canada invited people to come to the prairies to, to populate the prairies. And they sent some of these invitations in the form of advertisements to newspapers in the South. And Black people read these newspapers. And many of these newspapers were actually Black newspapers. But I think the people in Canada didn't imagine that there were Black people who could read or had newspapers. And so they called us, right? They called us to come, to come. We responded. Okay, and that's what you get when you call, right? So all of that is the response of weeds, a misplacement of uh, Black literature on the prairies. That, that's amazing. Now, that's so brilliant, Bertrand. And I, I love also how you also divided the book into four parts, let's say. The rivers yes. on the prairies. Yes. And I, now I am the one that's looking and yes. accidental agriculture. Uh, sorry, accidental agriculture. Tell me yes. about this, these four parts and why are those in specific? Yes. When I first started writing the poems that became part of this collection, I had so much to say. And so I was writing a lot of poetry. At one point, I remember I was writing a poem a day. It was one summer in 2014 or 2015 or so. I would write a poem a day, unprompted. It came very naturally and very easily to me throughout that summer. So probably about 60 or 70 poems that came out in uh, that summer alone. Now, the rest of the time wasn't as fertile as that, but 
still, I had a lot of poems. So when it came time to think about putting a collection together, I realized that I had, you know, over 200 poems and I can't put together a collection of poetry with 200 poems. No one's going to want to publish that, you know, unless you're William Wordsworth or something like that. <laughs> but no one's going to do that for me. So I had to pare it down somehow. And so what I did was I looked through all the poems to see if I could find themes. And there were very clear themes. There were a whole set of poems that just dealt with me and my biography and stuff going on with me. And there were a whole set of poems that dealt with Alberta and the landscape. And then there were a whole set of poems that dealt with history as well. And so I thought for the first volume, because what I realized, Mahmoud, is actually I've got enough poetry here for three volume, volumes of poems. Yeah. So I thought what I'll do for the, the first volume is I'll just focus on a kind of a sort of chorus of Black Alberta. I'll just do selections of everything that I've been working on over here. The best of. And from the best of, I thought, well, because I've got these landscape poems here, why don't I focus on them, but in poetic ways? And for me, poetry has always been about seeing what's not regularly seen or voicing what is not regularly voiced. And something that is always overlooked when we talk about the prairies is water. We always talk about the fields and the wheat and the horizon and all of that. And so I really wanted to bring out this element to the prairies. So I had several poems that focused on rivers. And so I kept writing a few more and I brought those up. I also thought that talking about rivers would be a really interesting way of showing connections between things as well. Uh, because rivers in the landscape, that's exactly what they do. They all begin from these headwaters and then they slowly converge together and then they empty out somewhere at one point. So I thought this was a lovely way of thinking about how the various experiences I've, I've had, the various histories that I want to uncover, and the various literary tropes that I want to explore could all kind of converge together. So really it was a matter of making use of my actual English literature background, sitting down, pulling out themes, and then pulling them together in interesting ways. And so, yeah, that's where rivers came from that. And then the, the fields, those are, um, now I'm looking at poems on the prairies, same idea. Although I do want to point out the now I'm looking at section, I felt as though I could um, marry two elements to my writing or two concerns that I have. One was the landscape. So I could talk about now I'm looking at a field of this and a field of that. But the other was this experience of Blackness, of being an invisible and hyper-visible being at the same time. So this old woman who came up to my mom and me at, at the bus stop, she, all she sees is Blackness, right? That's, that, that's it. And so she immediately launches into her, where are you from? Because that's all she can see. I wanted to turn the tables and to demonstrate how I can do some looking too, and to maybe show how looking is a power play, right? It's not just passive gazing, but it creates, it reinvents, it names, it defines, it categorizes. And so I wanted to bring all of those things out with the now I'm looking. And then the accidental agriculture is, you know, it's just, I'm basically an urban creature, but I happen to be in this province that's associated with agriculture. I happen to be working at an agricultural college. And so I can associate Blackness with agriculture as well. And you may think it's accidental. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not.
I will, I will come to that, but I am very interested when you were talking about rivers and I will start with that by asking, because you said how rivers come together then, because in the, po in the poem, the Negro speaks of Alberta, you describe that really well, which shows like this complex relationship with the landscape, because you, you talk about, uh, you describe how Old Man River meets the Bo River. I yes. think that, that's close to Medicine Hat, uh, yes. what's called the Grand Forks. To form South Saskatchewan, you basically said these geographical information that I wasn't aware of in a poem. But at the end, you ended that with the tone you know these rivers well, you do, but you say you don't see me. Yeah, exactly. So I guess a bit of that, um, now I'm the one doing the looking. So this is the other side of that. This is uh, exploring that aspect that has always been marginalized, that's always been made invisible. Like I find it heartwarming to hear that you learned of the geography through my poetry. Like I really love that because part of the aim of the poetry and that poem specifically, is to demonstrate that my Black voice can articulate this landscape as well. I can describe it and I can share, I can share my perspective of it. It doesn't just have to come from the history book of that white guy or that European descended blah, 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 right? We have a place here as well and I can teach you what it is, you the reader that is, uh, what it is. On my drive to Red Deer, yes. and I read all those names, all that, yeah. like the villages, the towns, everywhere. And I was reading your poetry, and I saw all of those towns. Yes. The one I see on the, on the signs outside, they were in your poetry. And if someone doesn't drive on the highway number two, driving uh, north to Red Deer, you may most likely won't know those towns unless you do your research and you will learn from this poetry the geography of the of the prairies through your poetry and you in the last i talked about the first poem the negro speaks of alberta now i'll talk about the last poem in the the first part noticing yeah. you talk about black visibility or invisibility in a storied soil what is a storied soil and how is it connected to the concept of visibility or invisibility absolutely yeah uh storied soil for me anyway and you know, I don't want to give too much away because I want people to enjoy the poetry themselves. But uh, <laughs> storied soil for me does, it is connected to that visibility and invisibility. So storied is history for me, but it is also the stories of our experiences as well. So the stories that I received about Alberta growing up didn't include me. They had lots of things that were interesting, cowboy history and you know, this interest in the land and landscape and agriculture and even oil to a certain ex extent. It's interesting learning about the histories of these things, but you are not in any of those at all. When you go out and do research, you discover that actually you were in these things. So for example, Grant McEwen writes about John Ware potentially being the discoverer of natural gas in Southern Alberta. He has a, a little anecdote that he gives, and who knows how much of it is actually true, but it would have been very helpful for me in school if someone had just pointed me towards this anecdote in Grant McEwen. That would have been something. I had never even heard of John Ware when I was in school, right? 
So part of the storying is also, in a sense, an unstorying. It's, a, it's an untelling. It's a silencing again. So there are stories that are told, but they cover up other stories. And you know, what's very interesting that soil actually builds itself up uh, in that way as well. You have horizons and you have levels of soil uh, that build up the parent materials underneath and it all grows upwards. And in a sense, I feel that that is the storied soil, soil of this province as well. It's kind of inverted from what we think, but it's, it's layered and it's covering up things in there. So yes, it's a, it's a story of history, the storied soil, story of history, but it's also the story of stories as well as silence too. And the final thing I wanna say about that, uh, Mahmoud, is that the soil itself became very important to me too, for a couple of reasons. Soil, of course, is the um, medium or the matter in which we can nurture things. So things can grow from it. I grew up in Alberta. So in a sense, I was nurtured by this soil here, but it didn't nurture me. So I feel as though these poems can be an attempt at planting new seeds that can nurture something else, new perspectives. Yes, some people might call them weeds. I don't care, call them weeds. But they can grow and they can thrive and they can produce something in this world as well that can be seen as valuable. And the very last thing about soil that I wanted to mention was that soil is also something that is connected to blackness in that when we soil something, it's kind of unwanted. It's something we don't like, it's dirty. And when I was a kid, I did have no, a number of uh, experiences. In fact, I write about this in one of the poems in which kids would like point to mud and say, hey, that's the color you are. Or, you know, put my hand or my face up against dirt and say, look, I can't tell the difference or some funny joke like that that they would do. And so I got used to being associated with soil and dirt and things like that. And so here I want to produce a new story for the soil okay, when I'm talking about storied soil. And that's the final thing that I'll say about soil. I'll let the readers do the rest. <laughs> this is so brilliant. This is so brilliant. I love it. Uh, you prefaced uh, on the prairies with a quotation from Henry Bibb's narrative. That complicates the relationship with the place. Why there is no possible way to escape the prairies, as you mentioned, uh, uh, sorry, as the quotation mentioned, and why did Henry want to escape, first of all? Because I feel these questions impact the tone of the, the whole part, which is the, the, the third part on the prairies. Sorry, the second part on the prairies. A, a great question. No one has asked me that before, actually. When I lived in the United States, I loved reading about slave narratives. I loved it in particular because, and I should point out, this was the first time I was really reading them in depth. Um, I had to teach a class on African-American literature and it was actually supposed to be intersections between Africa and African-American literature. And my background was African literature at that point. And so I had to read up on uh, African-American literature. And I so loved reading all of these slave narratives and getting immersed in them. And Henry Bibb in particular really, really uh, struck me because this was a guy who didn't run away just once. He ran away multiple times and he would try to go back and get his wife and get his kids and he would go back and forth. Uh, between the U.S. and Canada. So I, I really loved his text. There's so many texts that I love too, by the way, the slave narratives. But one thing that always struck me was how he talked about the landscape when he was running. And when he mentions this one part in which he sees a prairie and he feels fear 
I thought to myself, yeah, that's exa exactly <laughs> right. You know, I grew up on the prairies and I never felt as though I could feel comfortable or secure on the prairies. I always felt, as I told you before, either invisible or hyper-visible. And when you're hyper-visible, you feel like a target is what you feel like. And so this element to Henry Bibb, who's escaping slavery, but needs to stay invisible. He needs to not to be visible, but had to go through a prairie. He had to go through it. This really resonated with me. So it's the paradox of the place I'm from, but also the place that rejects me at the same time. And obviously for Henry Bibb, it had enormous consequences that, that I cannot compare my experiences to at all. But they did resonate with me in that being a Black person on the prairies has this kind of hyper-visibility that I had to contend with all of my life. So yes, it definitely does set up the rest of that section. It absolutely does. He was running from slavery. I was running from the prairies. I've been running away from Alberta all my life. And that's why I lived in the United States. I lived in the UK. I lived in BC for many years. And I never felt comfortable or confident in Alberta. But in the end, I came back. And now I'm just trying to forge my place. So here I am, exposed on the prairies again, hoping that I can just channel the energy of Henry Bibb and others to help me survive. <laughs> and, and I think your, your poetry is not just adding or engaging your readers with these stories. It's also forcing them to go and, as, as it did to me, to go and research who is Henry Bibb. And you need to go and know that. And that's exactly what I think your poetry did to me. It's just like lots of research that I missed because my education didn't include those figures in it. And I think that was so brilliant. And that is also the case when you wrote about Syl Sylvester Long on the prairies. Right. And would, would you mind to just clarify this kind of indigenous black relationship through the figure of Sylvester Long? Yes, Sylvester Long is a very interesting character. You'll find more writings on him, by the way. Karina Vernon has also written on Sylvester Long. And I encountered him through this uh, book by uh, Donald B. Smith, who was a um, historian at UFC. He's probably still associated with them, but I, I don't think he teaches there anymore. And uh, what this text reveals is the very longstanding and complicated relationship between the people who were brought from Africa to North America and the people who were already here. Both of them become marginalized by this European presence. And so invariably, there were connections between them. So in the case of Henry Bibb, actually, it's, it's quite interesting that when slaves would escape, often they would find themselves amongst indigenous communities. And sometimes they would be supported and helped, and sometimes they would join these communities as well. There are lots of examples of the overlap of Black and Indigenous communities in terms of intermarriage and, and that sort of thing. I could, go, I could go on and on, but I realize that I am now digressing. So let me not digress. <laughs> so Sylvester Long is a man who, he's from South Carolina, and he was raised in this town, the part of the town that's all Black. His parents have mixed racial heritage, and this is something that's very common in the South, in the American South, because there was so much mixing uh, going on. First of all, obviously, you have the, the horror and the trauma of the slave owners who would force themselves on uh, their slaves. But then you also had this intermixing that happened with 
uh, between marginalized groups as well, Black and Indigenous. And there are several groups that are officially Black and Indigenous in the, in the United States that still hold on to that, that history. There's also the little known history of Indigenous communities that also had Black slaves as well, as well as Indigenous slavery. So Indigenous people that had Indigenous slaves as well, who in, in, enslaved Indigenous people. So it, there was a lot of kind of crossover and mixing uh, uh, in that regard. And so by the time Sylvester Long, who, by the way, he's born at the end of the 19th century, I forget the date exactly, it's like 1882 or something like that, I forget. By the time he is born, lots of people in the South have mixed ancestry. And if you're not white in the United States, in the, uh, the South of the United States, then you're considered black or colored. And that means you just don't have all the advantages of uh, being white. And Sylvester Long doesn't actually look, he doesn't present blatantly black. And he clearly wanted to escape the limitations of being a black man. And because his parents claimed some indigenous background, he highlighted that, he selected that and he emphasized that. And he claimed that for himself. And he went off to the Carlisle, what was known as the Carlisle Indian School back then, and basically a residential school. But it was one of the ways that you could rise if you were, uh, if you were Indigenous back then. So he claimed that and he asserted it, and he claimed it for the rest of his life. Interestingly, though, his brother calls himself Black and identified as a Black man because that was the option for him. So either you're white or you're not white. And then most people are just basically, uh, they're, they're considered black in the South, but there are mixed ancestries there. So Sylvester Long is so interesting because he's always been a, what I think of as a confabulator. He's a storyteller and that's his best trait. So he makes his way across the United States. He comes to Canada, he joins the military, he fights in World War I, he comes back, to Canada and he works in Alberta as a journalist writing stories. And all while he's doing this, he's asserting himself as an uh, indigenous person. And he even claims Blackfoot identity specifically. And everywhere he goes, he starts to assert these identities more and more concretely, more and more specifically. So that eventually he produces a uh, quote unquote autobiography about being a Blackfoot when of course he never was that he is from South Carolina and is more closely associated, associated with the black community than the indigenous community. So I wanted Albertans to know about this. I wanted them to know about this figure from history and I wanted them to know about the slipperiness of race as well, that you can't just throw them in boxes, black and white and be done and be happy. It just doesn't work that way. It takes forever for me to understand the complexity and the richness of that history. Lots of research, lots of reading, and you would be surprised. The audacity for some people just to come, oh, like, you know, put, like putting people in boxes. Oh, this exactly. is exactly. And you would be like wondering, really, like you need to be really ignorant and you need to have this kind of audacity to come and do that claim. Like it's, these histories are super complex and super exactly. rich. And there's so much to the story then you can just quickly claim that you know or you have this certitude and this attitude about these these uh, observations and I noticed that in the third part you turned that kind of 
gaze, right? You turn yes. like, I am the one that is looking, right? Is this the gaze back or the what post-colonialism used to call right back, looking back, the agency, you are the cameraman. And particularly in the poem, these empty flatlands, the speaker is holding the camera to documenting what sounds like a stair contest with a scarecrow. But we figured out that the scarecrow at the end has no face or no eyes, so not able to see. What do you tell us about this poem? Yeah, I'm glad that you, I'm glad you pointed to that poem for this particular question, because you're right. I think I do come from that era of post-colonial literature and um, post-colonial theory. And, you know, I was, that's what I was schooled in for sure. And so for me, this was kind of like writing back to the empire, as we used to say, right? It, it, it really was, um, but it is a different era. And so I wanted to be cognizant or I wanted to be sensitive of the the traps of the power of the gaze. So yes, now I'm the one doing the, the gazing. And I wanted people to know that, that this is my territory you're on now. And I wanted that to be blatantly clear. But at the same time, at the same time, I want to recognize that there is always a danger in being the gazer or being the looker for those reasons we mentioned before. Looking, gazing is an act of power. It can be an act of power, it often is, and can categorize name, et cetera, et cetera. And so in this particular poem, I wanted to emphasize the ambivalent nature of looking. And sure, I'm looking and I'm able to look and here's what I'm looking at and it belongs to this landscape that is mine. But in the end, do I really have control over who gets to be the gazer and who gets to be gazed at? Do I really? It's very tricky. In poetry, of course, what we're doing is we're dealing with language and words, and we try to uh, explore those elements of language that are in between, that are slippery, that are not fixed. And I feel that this poem is trying to describe that in terms of looking as well. Is is fighting part of looking because you weren't or this let me rephrase the question you in accidental agriculture the last part of your the speaker was in trouble why do you fight back yes <laughs> fighting is a part of looking or i'll rephrase that for me in my life fighting has been a part of looking so there has been the fight to defend myself and there is the fight to defend my position as well. So when I was young, I would often get into fights. And this is simply because I can look back now and see it clearly. This is simply because the tropes that my white friends, and many of them were even my friends, had absorbed around them was that blackness was strong, it was tough, it was physical, it was violent. And so often they just wanted to test themselves against this blackness. And so they would pick any old reason to do it which of course would just baffle me, right? Because I, you know, well, for obvious reasons. So it did become, looking did become fighting for me. Sometimes it would literally be, I would just glance over at someone and that was enough. I, I would see it in their eyes. They were like, huh? looking at me, the look would provoke the fight. And the principal Sometimes, wasn't happy with that. <laughs> no, not one bit, no. <laughs> so I shouldn't brag about this at all, but I sometimes I feel like I spent more time in the principal's office when I was young than in the classroom. Uh, I was so regularly sent there. But that also speaks to the systemic racism as well and how 
Uh, I was just regularly seen as a problem, even though I was the target of, uh, uh, of fights. So yes, I would end up in the principal's office and those who have read the poem <laughs> will know that the principal, and this actually is true, but it's not a single episode. It happened to me many times, many times. The principal chose to punish me as well for being involved in a fight. And I feel as though that this was, again, the principal absorbing these tropes about blackness, right? And these black people are just like that, right? And I got to put them in their place sort of thing. But so the fighting for me is defending my, myself and my position. And now when I look at it, I think of it as fighting for that voice, right? I, and I'm going to fight for it. So my black voice, poetry is fighting for my black voice. These images are fighting for my black voice. And this poem is fighting for my black voice because as much as my education and my lack of education formed me, as much as my undergraduate education in literature have formed me, those experiences that I had on the prairies that marked me as different, as invisible, as hypervisible, as wrong, as violent, et cetera, et cetera, they all educated me into the poet that I am today. And that's what I hope came across in that particular poem. Bernard Bickerstaff, thank you so much for your passion and for your writing and for the amount of knowledge that you gave me today. And while i reading your amazing book, The Response of the Weeds, I felt like so, I feel so privileged to have the chance to talk to you and you, you read your work. Thank you so much for being with me today. Well, thank you so much, Mahmoud. Thank you so much for having me here. I really appreciate the questions and the engagement with the text. It is nothing more than a joy for me to sit and talk about these things. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this interview of Bertrand Bickersteff by Mahmoud Ababneh. I'm Mark Herman Lynch, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. We recognize the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stokel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Mahmoud Ababneh, Paul Meunier, Ryan Stern, Mark Herman Lynch, Xu Yin Yu, Rebecca Gillain, Micah Jacobson, Amy LeBlanc, Ben Gaughan, and Shazi Hafiz. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.teahouse.ca. That is teahouse, T-I-A, house.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at tiahouse, Y-Y-C, at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening.